the show goes on the official show on the fish stripes podcast recording here on a tuesday night it's eli sussman of fish stripes with my deputy editor lewis adio weiss to bring you the epic conclusion of the marlins off-season shopping series y'all ready yeah, yeah, we're ready to go. We are ready. Aisle five of this off-season shopping series. A reminder for anybody that has missed aisle one or aisle two or aisle three, aisle four. We've been doing one a week. They're all on the same podcast feed. They're on fishstripes.com if you need to find them there. We've been building our way up, all based on how they're performing the previous year, and we have reached the summit these are going to be players that in the 2021 season produced more than four wins above replacement by baseball reference calculations. I think plain and simple, Lewis, if the Marlins get any of these guys that we're going to go through and they get them at a fair value or somehow get them below market value, just this one guy from this list would go a long way towards making it a totally successful offseason. Absolutely. And not to say that getting one of these guys is going to ensure that we're going to be a playoff team just because you have, you know, essentially three other teams in that division that you have to be wary of with Philly, Atlanta, the reigning World Series champions and the Mets, if they can get their front office situation sorted out. But, you know, we've spoken ad nauseum at how the front office has been adamant about how they want to upgrade the roster this offseason, particularly on the position player front. And, you know, labor situation pending fingers crossed they can actually go out and get some of these guys that we're going to talk about tonight and maybe some of the guys that we discussed in previous episodes because you know and i know and most of us who watch this team on a daily basis know that the offense is generally starved for runs the last few years particularly in the post stanton yelich ozuna era so i'm sure we could definitely benefit from somebody that we're going to discuss and have already discussed people will We'll have to preach patience for people listening to this just because uh, as we're recording this, how many major league free agents have signed? Maybe two or three. Andrew Heaney, old friends, Andrew Heaney. I think TJ McFarland went back to his former team. Uh, for these guys, I, you got to imagine that they'll wait until the for the free agents we'll discuss. They'll definitely wait until once there's some like closure to the new CBA and even with the trade candidates, it's just hard to imagine these teams pulling the trigger on trading, in some cases, you know, the faces of their franchise without knowing exactly what baseball landscape will look like in 2022 and beyond, right? So that's that's my not-so-educated prediction, is that these guys will, for the most part, stand pat until we actually know what baseball is going to look like moving forward. Yeah, and we did. We, you, and, you and I had a brief discussion sometime last week when – we saw that Tucker Barnhart was dealt to Detroit. Detroit obviously needed catching help at that position. Yeah, uh, a guy that we spoke about early in this series, I believe the first episode is somebody who could have made sense for the Marlins. I'm fortunate we didn't because there's some guys we may talk about tonight that may actually fit at that position, a position where Miami has had some instability as far as production goes the last couple of years. Uh, whenever you want to get into it, just Go ahead. I mean, we could start at that position if you like. We can even start, you know, somewhere over in the infield. It's up to you. But, you know, just let me know. I can, if you'd like, I can kind of just get going with somebody. We're talking about catcher. Um, I'm just, there were rumors last offseason and at some point during this year when that team began to sell off that we were having some interest in trading for him. So I'll just go out and talk about a guy like Wilson Contreras. Mm-hmm. 
Give me some of your takes on him before we kind of delve deeper into the numbers. Where do you think he fits? Um, does he solve the need for us at catcher in the short term? I mean, we don't necessarily have anybody in the pipeline that kind of has us really excited over the next coming years. But, you know, how do you look at Wilson Contreras as a short-term fix? I have a proposed trade for you, but uh, give me your takes initially on the possibility of acquiring a guy like Wilson Contreras who – by numbers, finished with 4.1 baseball reference work. So he just slides into this yeah. category for this episode tonight to get us started. But it's hard to slide into this tier as a catcher because, as we know, catchers just don't get as much playing time as anybody else. And there's really across baseball, it's kind of two guys that are in a league of their own in terms of actually punching the clock, per se, and, and like racking up all those mileage as catchers. It's Wilson Contreras. It's JT Real Muto. Those are the guys that... Uh, health per, like the, the last the last two years really most of the last four years with Contreras aside from one injury in 2019 you just love the fact that he's durable and he's able to take the field in such a way that when when all are said and done you know the overall numbers he's had a little bit of streakiness in his career but nothing really out of the ordinary the overall numbers uh, for, throughout almost a, his entire major league career he's a good offensive catcher and he graded out as, as you mentioned, I mean, really, the reason why he cracks this this tier is based a lot on his defense as well. He girded out really well while playing with a Cubs pitching staff that could not have been any more like disparate compared to what the Marlins have. He he's somebody that I think even going beyond the numbers, you have to imagine you'll get the best out of him uh, as a catcher with how grateful he'll be to actually pitch with some so many pitchers that have nasty stuff in the Marlins organization. Whereas with the Cubs, it was really slim pickings in that regard. For the, you know, it's funny. We talk about batting average a lot as being a, a statistic that as, you know, more front offices start to, you know, get the right analytics department and dig beyond the surface level numbers. You start to see how inundated a metric that is. And he's kind of, in my opinion, when you look at a guy like him, I mean, if you, if you show, if you mentioned Wilson Contreras, hitting 237 to a traditional baseball fan, you know, you, they're not going to be overly wowed by what he does. But then when you look at the other factors you talked about, especially his defense, a career high eight defensive runs saved in 2021, a 340 on base. Um, yeah. I mean, he didn't have a, a, enough protection in Atlanta because guys like Brian and Rizzo would be traded. Baez would leave later in July as well. But you also look at a guy who just hits the ball hard. He finished in the 88th percentage in average exit velocity, 86th percentage in hard hit rate, max exit velocity. He was in the 95th percentile, so he was among the best hitters in the sport when it comes to merely just putting bat to ball and hitting it hard. A 108 OPS plus. Now, you know, with most other players that we're talking about here, that's not overly, like, amazing. You know, it's not, like, eye-raising. But when you look at the position and look at where he was doing it, with the little protection that he had as the season went on, you know, it gives you more perspective as to how good an offensive player he can be. And then one thing that gets ignored too, and he doesn't done it as much lately, but he has a bit of positional versatility. If most of us remember, if you peruse baseball references, minor league fielding logs, you'll see he came up as an infielder. So there were times where he was playing second base, third base. I believe he logged some time at shortstop early in his career um you know he's played the corner outfield before he has some spot starts at first base so he does provide some value beyond that obviously we saw guys like Alfaro do that where 
that was more of an experiment to kind of just say like, all right, your offense hasn't necessarily translated it behind the plate. Let's see what you can do and say left field. And to an extent he hit a little bit better, but Alfaro's approach just doesn't age well. And really it hasn't changed ever since he's gone over to Miami. It's high swing and miss yep. with low plate discipline. But a guy like Contreras, if you can put up a 340 on base, a catcher, especially when you have the the task of just having to memorize a pitching staff and getting beyond that, any offense you get out of a catcher is great. But when it's 8% above the league average and you're doing it with power, it's a win-win. Now, we should take into account that trading for him, it's not – maybe with some of the other guys we may talk about later in this episode, he's not going to be as expensive right. as some of the other names that we may talk about. And the context involved in that is the fact that he's a free agent after the 2022 season. Now, I look on baseball trade values this morning to see what he's worth, and his median trade value is about a 14 on their their met, their scale for how they gauge what a player could bring in return. So yeah. I put together a proposed trade. Just you know, obviously, like when I think of a when I think of smart baseball savvy trades, I think of what Mike Rizzo said a guy who is known to make very smart trades. You know, we know obviously in our division, he said, you know, one of the things that he's kind of said is that we want the trade to work for both sides. So address a need in the short term for your team, whereas you may give the team something that they need in the long term or give them a fundamental piece that may be there when that team reaches its competitive window again and they're still somewhat, you know, peaking or at least a productive player at the big league level. So I put together a list of things that maybe the Cubs need as far as players who I don't think necessarily serve all too much of a role with us going forward, whether that be because of injuries or they just haven't proven themselves enough with us. So I put together a proposed trade that would see the likes of Jose Devers, Braxton Garrett, and Garrett Cooper making their way over to Chicago to acquire the likes of Contreras. And if you really think about it, as far as the value that Wilson Contreras would give you, say theoretically he's a three or four win player for us next year, that isn't too bad of a trade. I understand the team doesn't have a lot of velocity in their starting rotation, and we saw it come to bite them with guys like Zach Davies starting up hot and progressively fading down the stretch. But Braxton Garrett eventually, you know, first-round pick in 2016, needs a, a place to go where he's going to be able to pitch every fifth day. And for a Chicago Cubs team that's really not going to compete in that NL Central with teams like Milwaukee being smart with the way that they go about trading for and fixing players the way they do with a guy like Willie Adamas, St. Louis going to constantly always maybe be in that mix for a playoff spot. I I think, you know, you just need to give Garrett every uh, uh, start every fifth or sixth day with the way that pitchers are used nowadays. And Garrett Cooper, when you look at it in the context of like, do the Cubs in a rebuilding phase really want to spend the projected 70 to $80 million that it may take to bring a guy back like Anthony Rizzo? No, Garrett Cooper about the same age as Rizzo, maybe a year younger, but, you know, durability is a question. However, we've seen when on the field, he's a productive player. And I think if you take him out of Miami, put him in a place like Chicago, we saw when Andre Dawson went over to Chicago, he won the MVP <laughs> award. Not that Garrett Cooper's going to yeah. do that. And I'm not okay. comparing Garrett Cooper in any way, shape or form, but we see that guys tend to produce a little bit more offensively in a ballpark like Chicago, especially when the wind's blown out, you know, I just asked Mike Schmidt, 1976, Garrett Cooper could fill a need in the short term at first base for them. Devers, again, I don't necessarily see the fit long-term. He's young. Things can change. We've seen stranger things happen. But, you know, the Cubs, 
main, you know, you, you can never have enough infield depth as far as utility guys go. And he's shown that he could play second base at shortstop. I don't see him grading out much offensively with us to be, I mean, Jazz Chisholm's kind of being a blocking, you know, he's a blockade for him. Rojas is signed for the next couple of years. And should Miami change course and actually go in on one of these shortstops, you know, it's further going to block him from playing. But I don't think that's that ridiculous of a proposal, especially for a guy who's going to hit free agency. I mean, you're going to get at least one productive big leaguer out of that in Cooper, should he be on the field. And then Garrett, at least, is going to give you a pitcher every fifth day to fill holes in the rotation. And somebody that you can look at going forward, he's young enough to where, you know, should this team be competitive in the next couple of years, he could be a guy, should he sort some of the issues out that we've discussed, you know, could be somebody that makes sense for them going forward. Yeah, I, I spent a whole lot of time on the side you mentioned baseball trade values last offseason on Contreras because I felt very strongly that it made so much sense for them to do this a year ago when he had two years of control left and that by not addressing catcher more than they did last year, that it would come back to bite them, which proved to be pretty prescient, I'd say. I wasn't the only one that said that for sure. Plenty of people were on it, but that was a big regret from last year that they did basically nothing at catcher besides Sandy Leone on a minor league deal. So I think everybody is on the same page that they, no matter, there's nowhere to go but up in terms of their investment in the catcher position. They will bring in somebody, uh, whether they do Contreras, I, I think it is still possible. Uh, I was pushing for it harder last year, but as you point out, I think that's realistic based on what we've seen around the league. Guys with one year of control left, it makes a big difference in their value. Uh, I would say, you know, in terms of that particular proposal, I would guess that you would, so they the Cubs would insist on subbing out Garrett with somebody that's younger, that's someone that's not on the 40 man roster, and somebody that's just more raw with potential, even if they're more risky, just because the Cubs they seem to be, you know, on the front end of a rebuild. And they're not necessarily all that concerned with guys that will pitch every fifth day in the big leagues this upcoming season. I would think that they would push for Somebody like Zach McCambly from this most recent draft class. Um, guys drafted over the last couple years who are in the high minors, not necessarily uh, re totally ready to be big league starters. And that's not really you know the, the focus for them anyway. I th it's in the right ballpark. Um, I, I think a whole lot of teams are going to be interested in Contreras right now because it's not just the Marlins at this moment that have concerns about catcher. I mean, at this particular moment, you know, the dearth of catchers across baseball has never been more remarkable, especially with Buster Posey retiring on top of all of that. It was looking pretty thin even before Posey walked away. And, and now that he did yeah, anything else on Contreras. Yeah. I mean, I, I just like him so much. He has great athleticism for that position. I think he even undersold his, what he can do as a corner outfielder because people remember going back to, he was part of that world series championship team in 2016. And from what I recall, I mean, the situation was that the Cubs were juggling three catchers at that time, including him, but he was hitting so well as a rookie that they kind of forced him into a corner outfield spot because they wanted to keep him up and they wanted to keep him playing close to every day. Um, even though he wasn't really an outfielder at all, but he had the athleticism to figure it out and adjust. He was able to do that. And one other point on the on base skills, you pointed out six seasons in the big leagues. And these are his OBPs year by year. It's 357, 356, 339, 355, 356, 340. Now, it's not like league-leading numbers, but 
I would have to imagine you could look at everybody across all baseball, and I don't know anybody that might be that consistent six consecutive years of being like within that closer range in OBP. So that that's really remarkable that he has that skill that gives him such a high floor as an offensive player, even if you even if he enters his 30s and you don't know exactly what will happen uh, as an overall player. There's so much peace of mind with this guy, and that's why you know, if you do acquire him, why he makes a lot of sense as an extension candidate uh, if they do get him. So, uh, yeah, I, I love it. It's yeah, it's about finding that middle ground, giving up enough so that the Cubs can kind of look their fans in the eye and see that they got something real in return. And yeah, and, and hopefully um, do it with some hope that you'll actually be able to keep him beyond the 2022 season. And then it's just important to like look at the context to where Marlins catchers were in 2021. I mean, if you look at the triple slash line, it's ugly enough. It's a 212, 267. 319 slash 63 weighted runs created plus and a 35% strikeout rate with a 107 isolated power. So yeah, as we move on to the next person, it's not hyperbole to say that the Marlins have struggled at catcher. Ironically enough, the Braves finished worse than us, but you know, they won the world series and Alex Anthopoulos is a genius right now. So we can't really stake claim to much of that right now. Now um, the next person I wanted to talk about, unless you wanted to get to one of your guys, is somebody that we've discussed before. Uh, it's been talked about a myriad of times on Fish Stripes, and I'm sure we have pieces out there and people on our side championing for him to make his way over. He's going to be really friggin' expensive, but, you know, and I'm sure this is another crossover between you and me, but Brian Reynolds is somebody that, you know, I don't even think, though, that the, that the Pirates should trade him right now. Yep. I don't even think they necessarily need to, but... You know, he's coming off a six-win season, a 146 OPS plus. He slashed 302, 390, 522, played a decent center field. I think he's better off in the future as maybe a corner guy. I don't think he's like an elite defensive outfielder, but he's a free agent after 2025. So you acquire him, you're getting him for the next four years. I couldn't even put together a possible trade as to what makes sense just because right now he – his value is the, the highest it's going to be, especially when you consider that Pittsburgh's just not going to be competitive for a while. And he's just coming off, you know, the best season of his career. You know, you've spoken about it before. And I thought of you when I was putting this together for him, that 2020, you kind of throw out for most guys if they had a down year. And when you look at his first year in the big leagues, he was about 30% above the league average. And I believe he finished fourth in rookie of the year voting. So, and then he struggled mightily in 2021. I believe he was still at 103 OPS plus, if I'm not mistaken. But then you come out next year, and he's essentially a dark horse MVP candidate on a very bad team. And, yeah, I mean, not that the sky's the limit. I think he's a very good player. I think he's a three- to four-tool player because I don't think he's the best defender, but I also don't think he's, like, the worst base runner either. I, I, I mean, I love everything about him. His perception has been, uh, from the beginning, it's been sabotaged through no fault of his own, just by the timing and the the team and the league that he came up with. He was a rookie, uh, his first like full season in 2019 in the National League, in the same year that Fernando Tatis Jr. and Pete Alonso were rookies, and that's kind of that took out all the oxygen out of the rookie conversation. If he was a rookie in 2021 in the national league or the American league, 
he would that season you put it in this particular year and he'd be the best rookie in baseball <laughs> but it got totally lost because of Alonzo hitting for more homers and Tatis doing more of everything so he's not a Tatis player I think it's fair to say that he's not yeah he's a step below being the face of baseball but he's maybe just one step below he is awesome and the fact that he did perform so well both before and after the pandemic it really that's the way that I, I look at it that it makes me put very little perhaps almost no weight on the middle season if he shows if it's a player showing all the same skills afterwards that they showed before in both of those being very large samples he's he's an awesome player as you mentioned yeah, we don't want to spend a ton of time on him just because I can't imagine him being available right now. Um, in particular with the Marlins, I just don't think it's a super great fit because it starts with a centerpiece. It starts with one particular must-have, can't-miss player that the Pirates would be willing to take back in return that they think potentially, if things go right, can turn into something close to what Brian Reynolds is the Marlins have a ton of depth in their organization, especially on the pitching side. I It's really hard for me to even pick out one youngish player that would make sense as a centerpiece for a team in that situation. Though really the only one that comes to mind, I may have brought up before, is Trevor Rogers, based on the rookie season that he had, that he is a couple years further away from free agency than Reynolds is, and that his he checks so many boxes as as a as a pitcher where you can see him even reaching a higher level of performance than he did in 2021 i that's about it that's about it i think the trade starts with that and then the marlins would have to be willing to give up even additional pieces outside of that to make it work and and for the pirates i just don't see a whole lot of incentive there where they are one of those teams right now that among people in the industry, people are pretty excited about their future and what they have coming up through their organization. But locally, the morale of that fan base probably couldn't be any lower. So a move like this just sets them even further back in that regard. And, and that's why I'm a, a little skeptical of him really being available right now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know what's so funny, though? I don't know how much stock you put into baseball references, similarity scores, but, you know, I was looking at them earlier today, and when the guy's top three comps are Shinsu Chu, Jim Edmonds, and Jason Giambi, and even at four is Andre Ethier, and I don't know how, if you're 100% familiar with the way sim scores works, Bill James does it from a zero to a thousand scale, and anything closest to a thousand is most similar as far as every factor or as every number of players put up to that point in their career put together and compared relative to the player that's in question. But if he's a hybrid of any of those guys, if he's a pro, if he's any of those guys, I don't think he's going to have the 40 home run power of Jason Giambi, but he has the ability to put up the, the on base and maybe the 25 to 31 home run power of a Chew or an Edmonds. Yeah. I mean, he's going to be valuable regardless of where you go. I mean, if they don't trade him, I think the Pirates should make him a centerpiece that they build around for sure. On the position player front, you know, you give him a lot of money. 
you kind of make him your this version of Andrew McCutcheon, you know, build around him. They which they did with McCutcheon, though they didn't go much farther than you know the wild card games, and just make him a player that you build around. But yeah, he's going to be so expensive in trade trade talks with he's brought up. I mean, like I said, I couldn't even put together a trade that makes sense because I don't even know you know where you start. I don't want to give up a guy like Trevor Rodgers. I think he's a guy that as you go, on, I think. You know, it may be hyperbole, but I think he's a guy like Rodgers, who, again, I'd be scared to give up, has almost like Chris Sale-esque potential should he continue at the pace he's going. Again, the sample size is very small. He's less than 200 innings in the big leagues. But, you know, the potential is there. I wouldn't want to give up on a guy like that. And, again, pitchers only throw every five days, so <clears throat> not 100% sure. But I don't know. It's he, He's going to be a fascinating guy. I would, be, you know, be – a lot of mixed feelings if they got, gave up a guy like him, but center field is a position that we need to address. And yeah, well, let's stick with that with these upcoming players. This being aisle five of our offseason shopping series, looking at the best of the best from this past season who are potential Marlins targets during the offseason. We're going to go to a very, very, very familiar name in center field, the top free agent on the board at center field by far, Starling Marte, 4.7 yep. war. This past season, put up most of that with the Marlins, and he did it despite missing a big chunk of the year due to injury. What I found is uh, out of all the players, all the position players in this tier, there was 40-something of them. You know, he was at the bottom end in terms of actual games played. Like, he accrued all this value despite missing a quarter of the season due to it was one injury, of course, with the Marlins, and then he also missed a, a couple games down the stretch with the A's. And yet, despite that, he put up the value. That's been more or less like the story of his career that he goes under the radar. He puts up great numbers. He is a little bit, you could say, injury prone. And yet, you know, when he is healthy, it's worth it because when he is healthy, he's one of the better players in the league. As people know, he, the one uh, missing aspect of his game, you might say, is consistent over the fence power, not necessarily a whole lot of home runs that didn't pick up for him even after the trade. He, does everything else. He does absolutely everything else. He led the league in stolen bases. He did it with ridiculous efficiency, especially with the A's. It's almost like he challenged. It was some sort of perverted challenge where every single time he got on base during like the month of August, he was stealing and he was averaging like a stolen base every game for most of the month without getting caught. You know, when he's motivated, when he, he, he makes the game look so easy both offensively and defensively. Um, we had high expectations for him entering the year. Um, I'd say as much as anything, the defense really did surprise me just because you look at the history of center fielders of a certain age. He was 32 this past year. He just turned 33. There are not a lot of everyday center fielders at that age because they just, it's a young man's position to play and just watching him and the stats back it up. Like he continues to stick at that very valuable position where I think when you're talking about pursuing him in free agency, uh, the most conservative estimates I've say, I've seen would be him taking a two-year deal with a huge annual average value. I'd say the more likely scenario is it's probably four years, that there are just so many teams interested that at the very least it's going to be three with some sort of favorable option at the end or a full four years guaranteed. And, and based on you know reporting that we covered here on the pod extensively, uh, it didn't seem the Marlins were comfortable extending him for four guaranteed years. That's what ultimately makes this conversation kind of like the Reynolds conversation. 
perhaps a little bit pointless because how much could really change about the front office's thinking between July and now? Probably not that much because his price has gone up with how he played down the stretch, but he was contending for the batting title and he's done that before. Like he's he not only had an amazing year, but it's a year that is pretty similar to a couple other years that he had previously, uh, despite spending like 60 ish games with the Marlins. He was one of the MVPs of the Marlins, uh, for this entire year. We, we know how dynamic he is, how much uh, he likes Miami. And I, I guess one other important thing just to bring up is that because he's coming from the A's, a team that's been very, um, unsubtle about their plans to begin a rebuild. He's not going back to the A's. There is one team. The one other team that he's played for recently is almost certainly even has a less of an appetite to spend than the Marlins do. So that's one suitor that you think is going to be out of the race. The fact that he was traded means he's not going to be attached to the qualifying offer. So you, you look at it both sides. Like there are some factors that you think actually do favor the Marlins. And then you just go back to the very frustrating reality that they had a chance to extend him and avoid this whole situation and, and didn't do it. But yeah, I'm all over the place with him because we just, we know him so intimately, but um, anything you want to add, go ahead. Yeah, I was reading Jim Bowden's piece ranking the top 25 free agents today on The Athletic, but it's a good read if you guys want to take a look at it. And, you know, I'm not going to talk too much about that article. All I will say in brief summary is that he may have overestimated what a lot of these guys are going to get. Yeah. The numbers that he threw out for Marte kind of raised my eyebrows a little bit. I was like, hmm, the years didn't necessarily concern me that much, but – um. Bowden put out there a projected deal of four years, $104 million. I, again, I, if that's the case at an AAV of 26 million, I don't think the Marlins are even going to come close. Yeah. No way. I don't, it I don't even number. think they come past like 15 million on that. I mean, Marte, you know, there are as great as he was last year. I still like, I hate to be the cynic, but there, uh, there are some concerns that lie with him. Granted, sure. while he's on the field, he's an excellent player. His war 162 was, I believe, near five. And if you're getting a five-win player on average, you know, $104 million is a almost a steal. You know, his career best walk rate was this year, 8.2%. Not awful, but again, he's never been, like, the best on-base guy as far as beyond just getting base hits. The hard hit rate isn't. The most encouraging thing, he finished in the 20th percentile on average exit velocity, 40th percentage in hard hit rate. But he also just doesn't miss when he swings most of the time. He only struck out 99 times this year. Um, he finds the ball. The note I wrote is he finds the ball, but he doesn't always square it up. And I think that shows itself in the hard hit metrics. That being said, though, he has a skill set that very few guys utilize in, in this day and age because of analytics, and that's base running. Really, I can't think of anybody else behind him, maybe him, Turner, Trey Turner, and Whit Merrifield, that are prolific base stealers. I mean, we va we vaunt guys nowadays if they hit 20 home runs and steal like 16 bases because it's a nice combination of power speed, and there's even power speed metrics out there to measure the, you know, the performance of guys like that. But then too, you also have to factor in, like you noted his age, he just turned 33. Do you really want to give $26 million to a guy who before this year wasn't considered a great center fielder, but in the corners was great, you know, maybe as a left fielder, 
That being said, though, should you bring him back, I think it frees up Brian De La Cruz from having to play center field because I think as good as an offensive player as he was in his first showing with the team, and granted it was less than 60 games, if you project that defense in center field over the course of a full season, I don't have a lot of high hopes for a guy like De La Cruz glove in center field, but I think he's better in left. I think Jesus Sanchez is better off served in right field, though I think he's a guy in a pinch can play center field. You know, as much as I love Marte and I, you know, would like to see him re-sign, if people are throwing numbers out there of nine digits as a possible contract for him, chances yeah. are Miami's just going to walk away and maybe pursue other options. Although, and as ironic as it sounds, as much as that is for a guy like him, considering that he you know, doesn't have prodigious power like you know that he only slugged 458, which not bad. He's still at a 132 OPS plus in total. He only hit 12 home runs. I mean, he's fast, but how does speed age? We see that it doesn't always age well unless your name's Ricky Anderson. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't even know where are you even comfortable with giving a guy a contract like that. Do you go past 70 million? Do you give him 80 million? Yeah, I, I gave out a very particular number when we discussed it back in July. I, I think I arrived at four years and 67 million was the number that I was comfortable with, which again, just based on the reporting from the Miami Herald at the time, that sounds like that would have gotten it done back then. But the way that things are trending here, well, I mean, all this being a big guessing game with the new CBA and how long he's going to wait, um, that, if they were still able to get him at that number, I'd still approve of it. But it, it seems like more likely than not, it's going to inch a little higher than that. Or if not that, it would just be like comparable guarantee, but only over three years. Yeah, something like that. I think either way, based on also how they traded Duvall away and, and don't have him, it just leaves you a situation where you don't need necessarily need to be picky about getting a center fielder. Where like if they just... If they got him and they're like, after year one, he's probably going to shift to left field. You know, that'd be great too, based on the situation where we're at now, because they do have, they still have a bunch of intriguing prospects coming up in the outfield uh, who we expect to debut over the course of the season. But I mean, in terms of entering the season and entering a season where you're, you want to have some expectations of being competitive, uh, getting either a center fielder or a left fielder of his caliber would be just a massive, massive win. And I I'm a little bit skeptical. Um, I was listening to the, a quick aside as we were earlier in the day when we were recording this uh, jazz Chisholm jr. Did a, did a live stream um, opening baseball cards and he was doing a Q and a during that live stream. And the question came up, who does he feel is the most underappreciated player in the majors? And out of all the players in the majors that he could have brought off, he said, Starling Marte. So I think that speaks to not just the ability that he has, but also the relationships that he built with guys like Jazz um, and plenty of the other players. Marlins have a lot of continuity with these position players that were here in both 2020 and 2021. Uh, just another reason why I think he would, he, he seemed to really make an impression on his teammates when, when he was here. And assuming a lot of those players are going to be back, it's just another sign like pointing to them to at least like, dip their toe in the water and, and try to right a wrong, you could say, that they made by trading him. Yeah, I mean, Farhan Zaidi knows Oakland's system from his time with the A's, and he's in San Francisco now, recently just named executive of the year. 
The Giants don't even have a true blue center fielder. I mean, they have guys like Steven Duggar and Mauricio Dubon, who doubles as a shortstop sometimes. Uh, he was listed as a projected fit in San Francisco. The Yankees have Aaron Hicks, but he's never healthy. Uh, they they owe him, I believe, another $40 million over four years, but I wouldn't be surprised if they shell out some money. There's also another team who could use a catcher, but this isn't a Yankees podcast, so we will move on to another Oakland A. Um, again, I think they're going to blow it up just because they there was a report that came out today via um, it was a Bleacher Report where the A's noted they were going to make some of their young players available, particularly pitchers, guys like Frankie Montas, um, available in trade. And, you know, he's a guy that we could have discussed in an earlier episode had we known about this or had some foresight. But, and I think the most expensive guy that would probably be on that roster to trade, but again, I understand we got Luis Diaz, but I'm not going to pass up the opportunity to acquire a guy like Matt Olson if one such one exists. I think Matt Olson is the most, uh, at least entering 2020, one of the most underrated, if not the most underrated player in baseball. I think he's an excellent player. I think he checks so many boxes. He has, you know, swing and miss was a problem early in his career, but we also have to take into account he struck at a career low 16.8% of the time this year. The slash line itself is amazing. I mean, 271, 371, 540, a 153 OPS plus. Career OPS plus is 134, so he has a track record, and that's five years of excellent offensive performance. He is a gold glove caliber first baseman. I believe he's won two gold gloves before. I watch him play first base, and I'm like, I've never seen a guy as smooth at the position other maybe than Pujols in his prime. Uh, I mean, he hits the shit out of the ball. If I can, you know, you use one of George Carlin's seven deadly sin words, average exit velocity, 95th percentile, 87th percentile in hard hit rate, 82nd percentile in barrel rate, 92nd percentile in walk rate. He walked 88 times last year. If they want to blow it up and you want to get a haul, then sign me up for whatever it's going to take to get a guy like Matt Olson because I think he's affordable. He's got a couple of years before free agency free agent after 2023. So imagine having that production at first base, should this not be his apex and say he could do this for another year or two, even if he's doing it at a 130 to 140 OPS plus clip. But I just think there's like so much to like about him. I understand that Lewin Diaz was encouraging at points, but if you really want to compete right now, while the Mets don't know their ass from a hole in the ground, I think right now is the best time to go out and get a guy like this. You know, we talked about Brian Reynolds being expensive. I think Olsen's going to be expensive. But for two yeah. years of club control, for somebody who's as underappreciated yet elite as he was, I mean, Grant, he was a six-win player this year by baseball reference. We're 5.8. I love this guy so much. You can even put him in the corner outfield spots, and he's going to be an above-average defender for you there if you need him to. He just checks off so many boxes about what it is that you need. And a first baseman and just a player in general, I mean – you know, I propose to trade maybe like a Lewin Diaz plus one or two A, B grade prospects in return for him and maybe some lower level guys that the A's or can kind of work to develop as the years go. But I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I love Matt Olson so much. I think he's so underappreciated. And, you know, yep. this year may have been the best year of his career and nobody even talked about it. An- yet another guy who during the pandemic shortened season – trailed off and people were didn't know exactly what to do with him when he hit 195 during that middle season where he's a league average hitter overall um 
but before the pandemic, as you, as you said, he was as underrated as anybody. And then he followed it up with a year where doing the same things that people already liked about him with the addition of the fact that he just stopped striking out that, that change um, to go from a guy that always had some swing and miss concerns being an elite player in that regard is almost unheard of. I'm glad you brought up Lewin Diaz because for anybody that the most ridiculous fantasies that you could possibly have about Lewin Diaz is that he becomes a player that is close to the level of Matt Olson. And uh, the alternative is trading for actual Matt Olson. And that's just, that's something that I wish people had had more perspective on is that what a gulf there is between somebody whose absolute potential apex um, is stardom versus the player that's already had a pretty lengthy track record of stardom and is still very much in the prime of his career, that, that this is one of those few cases where even if the Marlins do have this pretty obvious um, surplus of first baseman types, that this is the kind of guy that you that you like throw that all away in order to focus all your efforts on this one because of how dynamic he is and how much he helps you win in so in various aspects of the game. I I agree that he he's somebody worth looking at. Everybody on there's so many valuable pieces on that A's organization worth taking a look at. I think we discussed Matt Chapman briefly. Uh, I brought up Chris Bassett briefly as one of the arms that I'd, I'd love to fill out the pitching staff with someone that's experienced and yet doesn't have much of a commitment to go along with him. Yeah. For better or worse, you know, the A's weren't able to reach contract extensions with basically anybody. Um, so uh, on one hand, it gives you um, it's a low risk because if these guys, for whatever reason, totally tail off, then you don't have anything committed to them long-term at the same time. You'd in a perfect world, you'd love to have even more than two years of control over him. I, I, yeah, I, I like it. There's going to be, I think one particular rumor that did come out this week with Matt Olson is that the Yankees were very interested in him. And they're in a similar situation where they have some of their own first baseman candidates internally, but none that are really that great or that trustworthy moving forward. So they're prepared to like focus all their efforts on, one guy that absolutely mashes at the position. I think I'll take this opportunity to do a little cheating on here, like going with a player that isn't really in this aisle. For whatever reason, I overlooked him when we were on the previous aisle four because he just falls in at 3.9 war this past season. Another trade candidate, uh, another guy that also has two years of control remaining, and that would be Blue Jays outfielder Teoscar Hernandez. He also absolutely scorches the ball. Like his batted ball stats year after year have kind of flown under the radar because he's teammates with Vladdy Jr. and now with George Springer. But this past year, 32 home runs, 116 RBIs, slashing 296, 346, 524. And he's somebody that actually was also awesome during the pandemic 2020 season as well. And that's Jordan Gira, 919 OPS, and he had 16 homers in just 50 games during that shortened season. I bring him up because this, this idea of Toronto trading bats and the Marlins trading pitching to them has been discussed kind of ad nauseum going back all the way to the trade deadline. And most of those concepts I don't, I'm not a huge fan of. Like, I don't really think there's all that many pieces with the Blue Jays that. Are, are in that sweet spot 
who really like fit the needs to a T that the Marlins have. But if the Marlins are really determined to get outfielders that have this type of plus plus power who are still affordable and in their prime and for the blue Jays being that this is the one position where they do have kind of, they would be more willing to take somebody from that outfield mix um, without necessarily feeling a big hit themselves. I think Tasker Hernandez is that one guy um, more so like people have mentioned to me, Lourdes Gurriel, um, who is a teammate with his, who plays left field and some infield, but he's, and I think Tiasker is the one that has the more exceptional uh, natural ability that he's the one that you would trust making that pretty strange leap from going to a very hitter friendly environment in Roger center to making lone Depot. He has such incredible power that I just feel so much more comfortable about it translating anywhere and him not being phased by uh, the conditions of the ballpark. So yeah. as yeah. I said, you know, two years of control, Remaining Marlins would have to give up quite a bit, whether it's um, one of their very top pitching prospects or somebody that's actually already major league ready. It, it would hurt, but it's it's it's. I think it's in that sweet spot where it's it's doable. Where I, I think there is some common ground that could be found between the teams um, in order to potentially get something like that done. Yeah, we we saw a report today where the Marlins were thinking about shopping one of three starting pitchers, which made me raise my head because if they trade Sandy Alcantara, I'll become a Mets fan just out of protest. But, you know, you talked about what it would maybe cost. Uh, I mean, Pablo Lopez has never really has had a full season, though we do like him a lot. I mean, we did even see him. I mean, I covered the game in person where he set the record for most strikeouts the first time through the order to start a ball game. He struck out every single hitter, and I believe he came one strikeout shy of Corbin Burns, uh, Corbin Burns, Aranola, and Tom Seaver's record for 10 in a row before he got a ground up at first. But, um, yeah, Teoscar Hernandez, the one thing that I do have concerns about with him is the defense. He is a corner guy, so I think trading for him would know the idea of getting a guy like Castellanos, who maybe will cost more as far as dollars go, but is more of a sure thing with offense because you there's no – I mean, there's a bit of streakiness to – a guy like Castellanos, and there's more of it, and so with a guy like Teoscar Hernandez. But, you know, trading for him, you're going to have to probably keep De La Cruz in center. It may block Blade a bit if he, as far as where he's going to go because nobody thinks he's a, a center fielder going forward. He's kind of always been pegged as left or right fielder, even when he was at Vanderbilt. But that being said, you know, like, yeah, just to have that kind of bat in your lineup, just that presence – is something that, you know, it would be fun for fans to kind of witness on every day or so. Uh, he, it isn't, it didn't get talked about this year too. He was a better base runner than people give him credit for 85th percentile in sprint speed, 12 stolen bases. I mean, if you can steal 10 plus bags when hitting 30 home runs, things that we kind of saw guys like, you know, Goldschmidt do in the earlier part of his career. And again, I'm not making the direct comparison. It makes for a really good player. And, you know, had the defense been better, I would say, you know, 100%. But there are concerns that come with that. You know, how much can you hit um, to offset how bad somebody's glove really is? Ask a guy like Gary Sheffield. And, again, not a comparison. It's just another case of two totally different skill sets kind of lip coexisting within one player. Um, 
you know, there's a guy that you've talked about at nauseum. There's a guy that we all kind of talk about as being super affordable, so good that, again, it's he's almost – and I was thinking about – as I was getting ready for the show tonight, I'm thinking about is he the Scotty Pippen of baseball as far as just performing and vastly being underpaid? And I'm talking about Jose Ramirez yeah, because the performance so far outweighs what he's making. I mean, he has an $11 million club option for 2022 and a $13 million club option for 2023. So his initial contract, besides these team options that he has, is up. Very affordable contract that he signed. I believe it was under $50 million that he had signed during the 2016-2017 season. It's one of the best long-term contracts ever. And it is a long-term contract because it covered like basically his whole 20s. It's not done yet. It is because of just how consistently amazing he is that – I, we're going to look back on that and, and people will point to that as perhaps more surplus value than we've ever seen before. He's already a 32 war player. Uh, he's the odd. I wrote down that he's the oddest five tool player that I've ever seen. As far as the physical makeup goes, it's like if Juan Uribe took walks and didn't strike out as much, he'd be Jose Ramirez because Juan Uribe for as big a guy as he was during his career actually managed to play shortstop on a world series team. Jose Ramirez Ken is in a is an excellent defensive third baseman plus ten defensive runs saved this year, doing it while striking out seventy two times. I believe he's struck out almost as much as he's walked in his career, maybe eighty or ninety more strikeouts to walks. But in this era, you know, he's essentially Joe DiMaggio in that regard. Uh, Twenty, he he runs the bases well. Twenty seven stolen bases. He hits for an for elite power. He all while not you look at him and you're like. How does he even make a lot of this work? And it should be shouldn't be ignored that he can play pretty much every infield position that he's and he's done that besides first base. He's played some left field before, so you know something may, he's maybe not done in a while. But he's a lot more versatile defensively than people give him credit for. But that being said, you know it's not hyperbole to say he may be the best third baseman in baseball because I mean he's a seven win player. He's done that before. He finished top three in the MVP voting, I believe, twice, second once. So he's he's going to cost you so much money because even at $24 million over two years, while it may not be cheap to most people, it's a bargain relative to the production that he's going to give you. Everything on his baseball savant page is in red ink. So it's just like he doesn't do anything below, I think, the 60th percentile. So he's just excellent in almost everything that he does. I mean, he's going to be so expensive. Whoever gets him is going to give up a haul. They're going to back up a truck and – and I mean, he's going to hit free agency, I believe, before the age of 30, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong on that. But he's just – just the skill set that he says. I mean, the last thing I'll I'll, I'll say before I stop, you know, loving on the guy, I looked at some of his additional stat test metrics. You know, you know, he didn't slug below 480 on any pitch type this season. So on breaking balls, fastballs, and off-speed pitches, yeah. 584 on fastballs, 480 on breaking stuff, 488 on off-speed. He hits – everything and you know we talked about a guy like starling Marte who doesn't square up the ball as much jose ramirez does it at a much better rate and he strikes out even less so it's just like you know who you want to acquire and i know we have brian anderson and brian anderson has been encouraging we use that word a lot with marlins prospects because and players because you know we've we haven't seen in a while a full season of just like oh my god from a particular guy in a long time maybe back to the days of Stanton and Yelich. But Jose Ramirez, you know, like, you know, 
what you'd have to do to pull up a trade like that would, you know, almost be like robbery, just considering what he gives you and what you're paying him in dollars. One thing I don't want to gloss over is the fact that he used to be a primary middle infielder shortstop type, and he moved off of shortstop because Francisco Lindor was there, and he was teammates with Lindor, and Lindor was one of the best shortstops in baseball. And I'm, I guess defensively, he couldn't possibly be that good. But even though we categorize him as a third baseman because that's what he's been primarily, you know, during this prime of his career, I, he could probably play shortstop if you put him on like most other teams, if he stays with the guardians next year, I mean, maybe he starts next year as their shortstop because he's still uh, at a stage of his career where all the measurables say that the skills have not diminished one bit. He's, he's rusty at that position uh, as, as we'll probably talk about a little bit before we get to the end of the show that there are, there's just, an unprecedented volume of elite shortstops available this offseason. And we don't really categorize Jose Ramirez as such, but I wouldn't totally like hold it past him to be able to potentially make that switch and actually fit in with whatever team he goes to, including the Marlins as a shortstop, which is even, you know, just uh, as valuable as you could get even more so than being a third baseman, which in itself would be awesome. He seems to me, compared to somebody like Brian Reynolds, I think he is just a little bit more attainable. I think there is a scenario where where you headline him either with your very best prospect or somebody like, nobody wants to hear it, but somebody like Jazz Chisholm um, as the headliner of that. And maybe there is some sort of package that could be put together that, that Cleveland would be willing to pull the trigger on. I'm not getting my hopes up. Um, because just as the case with some of the guys we've mentioned, uh, the majority of teams in baseball would be on the phone if he were truly available. And some of those teams would be able to put together even better offers in in, in terms of what Cleveland is looking for than the Marlins can. But I, I would not totally rule it out. And he is, just to finish on this, he is, as you mentioned, just so delightful to watch. He is not built like very many baseball players and yet he he absolutely stuffs the staff sheet in like such a satisfying way. It's not just the overall war, but it's the fact that he piles up all those extra base hits, that he's one of the few guys that consistently steals bases and does it efficiently. He he does everything. He is um, I, I'm not going to say that he's underrated because we, we've said that for a lot of guys already, but I think we've reached a point where he is accepted as one of the very, very best players as somebody that, I could eventually be someone we talk about as a hall of fame candidate once his year is over, just depending on how he ages, he is that special. You just hope that he, he goes to a place you, you want him here. You want him with the Marlins. I think more so than he, even though I feel very strongly about Brian Anderson, I like having him around this is sort of what we mentioned with Matt Olson, that you really are willing to just blow up your plans at an entire position if you get somebody like this because these guys are do not come available every offseason. Yeah, I mean, if you want to paint a hypothetical dream scenario of, say, Jazz Chisholm is involved in a, in a package where we see Jose Ramirez heading to Miami, Miami could in turn, you know, if they need a second baseman for the short term, say a guy on a one or two year deal to, you know, coexist in Miami 
about the same time that Ramirez would be there with his contracts because it's a given that regardless of where he goes, you know, that $13 million club option, even if a team like even in a team like Cleveland, you know, they're gonna be bound to pick it up. You could sign your your guy, Eduardo Escobar, move him over to second base. Um, it also gives Ramirez the ability, and he's a selfless guy like a Miguel Rojas, where you know all three of those guys, theoretically Rojas, Ramirez, and Escobar, have the ability to move around yep. and fill multiple holes, keep a, a lot of guys fresh. You know, we can. There's always drafts and trades where we can you know go in and acquire another second baseman if we need to, but he would just make this team a lot better. And then if you add that power and then you add the power of an Escobar in the lineup, I know we discussed them in a previous episode, it makes the lineup a lot more formidable. I mean, Chisholm, you know, you know, I would say Eduardo Escobar is maybe what Jazz Chisholm could be, though I think Chisholm's defense is slightly better. But we'll get off that. Uh, any names you want to touch on? Maybe starting pitchers. Um, I know the Marlins are out on shortstops. But I have a couple of guys you want to talk about, but anybody on your list that you want to highlight? I have one more, one more trade candidate on the position player side who is uh, – he is really uh, – it's hard to wrap your mind around what to think of him as a player because he's always hurt. But mm-hmm. when he's healthy, he is like absolutely nobody else in baseball. It's Byron Buxton of the Twins yeah. who he has been – murmured about i wouldn't say legit rumors about the marlins going after him but like theorizing about it coming together he he very publicly did not take a contract extension from the twins this past summer that that was something the twins wanted to get done because he is just one more year of club control before he enters free agency and he is just such a tough player to value because of his injuries it's almost like very nobody else really in baseball that performs at such an, an elite level when he's available, but just isn't available very often. This past off, this past season, he put up a 1005 OPS, quadruple digit OPS as a center fielder. Just amazing power, amazing speed. He's one of the most efficient base runners that of the generation that he's played in. He's I think almost inarguably the best defensive center fielder of his generation ever since he came up, that was his calling card in his early days when he was still struggling with the bat, he was already an elite defensive center fielder. He he only has been acknowledged with one gold glove because he's only had one semi full length season where he's been eligible to win that gold glove, Uh, you know, for his career numbers are underwhelming um, because he came up at such a young age and still had, a lot to learn and adjust to just a, a lifetime 299 OBP, which I know will make you shudder a little bit. The fact that any, anybody would want to like focus so much on somebody that as recently as the 2020 shortened season put up a 267 OBP. Yeah. Throughout his career, he doesn't draw walks that much. Uh, and that's kind of an understatement that <laughs> during that 2020 season, he drew two walks in 135 plate appearances. I didn't know that was that was possible to be that hyper aggressive, but you know there have been times where he's been a little bit better in that regard. But it's the power and the speed that ninety fifth percentile or higher in all the stat cast measurables that his athleticism is off the charts. He is entering his age twenty eight season. He's, and he's in that situation where it's pretty clear that the Twins are not going to be signing him to his next contract. Um, such as the Wilson Contreras one. And you would think that I, I haven't checked baseball trade values, but I imagine they're 
estimation for him is maybe a little bit higher than it is for Contreras, but still manageable just because he is that close to testing the market. It's a complicated calculus for them in terms of what to do beyond this upcoming year. But I can't think of anybody better to like fill the center field void in particular with how he plays that position. As an added bonus, yes, history with James Rousen. James Rousen was with the Twins organization for a couple of years. I don't think it's a coincidence that Buxton turned himself from a decent hitter into a really great one as Rousen was there as their hitting coach at the time. So, so in terms of just one extra connection, that maybe makes you confident about him sustaining what he's found these last few years. Uh, there we go. We have it with Rousen, who is the current Marlins bench coach and maybe their next manager once Mattingly retires. I'm, I think that's a distinct possibility. So if you're going to tether yourself to one particular player, um, I, I think he's a guy that, uh, that he's worth rolling the dice on. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at his season, 61 games. Jose Abreu won the MVP in 2020, playing every single game. And Buxton put up a 171 OPS plus in the 61 games that he played. If Buxton does that in, in a pandemic-shortened season, a 306, 358, 647 slash line, the power was always kind of there. I mean, he did, had a couple of seasons previously of double-digit home run power, but just never to the extent of – the propensity at which he's hitting home runs, they're coming so frequently. I mean, if you look at his 162-game projection over the last three seasons, and you talk about the injuries, 187 games played over those last three years, but his 162-game average looks like this. 36 home runs, 91 RBIs, 22 stolen bases, a 575 slug, an 897 OPS, and then you factor in the defense is Kiermaier-esque, in center field, and you're talking about an MVP candidate every year. He, like, he put up essentially five war in 61 games, which yes. is let a little bit more than a third of the season. If you divide that out over 162 games, that's 11-12 war over the course of a full year. That's great. That's hypothetically he sustains that production, which, as we know, baseball is a game of streakiness, and even the best hitters are going to go through periods where you're hitting and other times where you look like Stevie Wonder with a bat in your hand. So understood. But, you know, like you said, roll the dice, sure. How much money do you have to give up in free when he eventually becomes a free agent? What do you give up in prospect capital? I don't know. I'm sure wherever Buxton goes, it's going to be a team where he wants to maybe stay long-term. He wouldn't feel the need as far as a guy who gets on base a lot just because he doesn't walk like you noted. He's only got 34 walks in the last 187 games played. And there's another guy that I'll talk about shortly who I think fits the bill, although he's in a middle infield position. Uh, but I don't know. He's such an odd player. Just, I mean, I remember hearing story, apocryphal stories about him being like another Mike Trout in the minor leagues as far as how toolsy he was. And I didn't know he was as elite a defender in center field until that first full season. I believe it was in 2016 or 2017. But ever since then, you know, when he's been on the field, he's just an elite talent. It's just that he needs to be healthy, and he hasn't been for a while. Yeah. Um, at this point, I it's there's not, there's not really much else that you could do to like put 
in terms of finding a useful comp to what he's going to do from this point forward. It's been such an unusual start to his career, but I, I think when you, you look forward, you can note that just coming up through the very beginning of his pro career from the drafts and moving forward, that he had always had this type of upside and potential that it's, it's not totally out of nowhere. Like this was the, the vision of the player that he could be when the twins took him almost a decade ago at this point at the top of the draft. And that makes me, uh, the, he wouldn't be the first guy to like come from that sort of situation and, and finally put it together at some point, uh, later in his career than you would actually, uh, expect him to, uh, from this point, uh, the last few guys I have on here are all, uh, I'll turn it over to you and see if we have some overlap here as we go to uh, players in a much different type of situation. I'll say the big white whale that I'm calling him for last. Um, I'll, I'll go in progressive order as far as I think, you know, needs and maybe fit. I'll start with a, an odd one. I don't know if we were going to touch on this and there's and chances are there may not be an overlap here, but Carlos Rodon is – Coming off a very good year, arguably the best year of his career through less than 140 innings. But five war, 237 ERA. He threw the no-hitter. The stuff returned. And like Buxton to a lesser extent, because he's been a little bit more durable at his respective position, injuries have just been a problem. We saw elbow and shoulder soreness kind of come in later in the season and derail what had been at one point he was a front runner, I think, before Lance Lynn to be a Cy Young favorite. Um, I saw on Bowden's article when I was reading about it today when he was ranking free agents, he was about middle of a pack as far as where he ranked. But I don't think it's a guy you have to commit long term to. Uh, you know, Bowden Jim Bowden had one year twelve million as a projected contract for Rodon with incentives, obviously, considering he's healthy and throws, you know, a good amount of innings. He could give you 90 good innings in the first half of the season. And if the Marlins, you know, continue their clinical trend of not competing, he's valuable at the trade deadline. You know, granted, you may not get what you want as far as, you know, premium prospect return, but you can get something for him because he'll be back on the open market again next year. You know, an NC State alum, a great college pitcher, but the stuff returned. You know, I, we have to also shouldn't forget he was non-tendered by the White Sox last year, came back, and had the best year of his career. He was an out away from a perfect game before I believe he hit Jose Ramirez with a slider on the foot. You know, nice little tie in there. But he does, he just he was another he's another example, almost like Buxton was this year and even last year, that when he's on the mound, he's you know, at times an elite starting pitcher. Again, I think he's just one of those guys where we give him a prove-it deal to see that 2021 wasn't a fluke. Can you be healthy? Can the stuff sustain itself? And if we're not competing, you know, we're going to get rid of you, but we're going to get something in return for it and be better off for it. It, it would bring some closure to longtime Marlins fans who do remember that he was the number three overall pick of the draft in 2014. The Marlins had the number two pick that year, and... They didn't go the college route. They went with Tyler Kolek oh, and Kolek being out of baseball, just as Rodon is peaking as he had, you know, moderate success early in his career. He was very quick to the majors and moderate success up there as a starter. And, but I mean, what he did this past year was on a whole nother level, of course, highlighted by the no hitter 
that he threw and not just like any no hitter. Like that was one of the more dominant no hitters of a year where there were a whole lot to choose from that. He was on another level at times, not just during his career with the stuff kind of going up and down, but even during the season and probably the reason why Bowden and some others think he may actually sell for a one-year deal. I'm not so sure about that, but it was so unusual this year to see him at times touching a hundred miles per hour from the left side. And then there were some starts right after the all-star break where he was in the low nineties and he was hurt. And there were some skepticism about him even being available for the playoffs. It got pretty dark um, at times, even during this one season that it's definitely gotten to a point that even as a Scott Boris client, where it'll be pushing for a lot of money, I think that makes it even more likely that he may settle for just a one-year deal to put any doubts behind him before really setting himself up the following winter. He'll be available. I've, I've mentioned before, I do think the Marlins should be looking at one starting pitcher of some kind, but not really much more than that. And there, there's so many to choose from, but preferably somebody on a short-term deal. And, and he would be that guy on a short-term deal. Uh, from that, I did want to at least mention the the biggest fish out there in the opinions of most experts, the player that would command the, likely the very biggest contract of this entire class. But just because I know you've given some thought to him as somebody that the Marlins should focus on, you know, even as unrealistic as it might be, Carlos Correa coming off a season where he led all major league position players in in baseball reference war, he did absolutely everything you want from, from a player this past year. It's hard to imagine, you know, what factors would somehow make him a, a potential target for the Marlins um, just because the price is going to be absurd. It's going to be even higher than I think people I've ever seen before. I think it, he is going to be looking at Manny Machado's deal um, a few years ago at 10 years and 300 million and try to surpass that. But we at Fish Stripes, when Machado was available, uh, we did just lay out in no uncertain terms that basically any big league team can afford one of these players if they really wanted to. You know, they have the revenue that the Marlins especially don't put directly back into baseball operations, but if they really wanted to get that centerpiece of their organization, uh, that they really they could they could if you appeal to the right emotion deep in Bruce Sherman's gut about having one particular player to build around, then that that money is somewhere that that spending ability is deep inside of him. Something that maybe you make an exception for if the right guy comes along. And just because I know you've mentioned Korea before, just worth acknowledging that. Yep, he's available. He's out there. And if the Marlins find 300 something million dollars under the couch cushions, <laughs> then he's 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 available and he's he's going to the highest bidder. Yeah, he I I mean ideally he's probably going to be a Yankee or somebody that is going to be willing to spend that money. I don't think that, I mean it was so odd. Corey Seager was projected in this art and that about an article I keep referencing to get 320 million over 10 years while Correa's deal was the exact deal that Machado got 10 at 300. I think Correa's defensive ability at shortstop, you know, he just won a gold glove this year. He led all shortstops in defensive runs saved. 
And then, like you said, the postseason track record. I don't give a shit about the sign-stealing scandal. I understand that a lot of people still may hold that over him with the now uber-unoriginal trash throws thing that gets thrown at the Astros over and over again. But Correa has a track record that shows you he doesn't need a garbage can to be able to hit a breaking ball or take 96 and deposit it over the left field wall. He's just, you know, he's not a great base runner, but I think he's... I think he's what Manny Machado is with a better postseason track record to show that, yeah, this guy's going to get paid, and it's just a matter of how much he's going to get paid. I read a Bleacher Report piece that came out ranking every possibility where he's going to go by every major league team, and the Marlins came in 18th on that list. So like you previously noted, and if you gave me a true serum, I would tell you that it's in all likelihood he's not going to wind up there. You know – the one caveat I have with that is that Miguel Rojas did say when he signed his extension, you know, I didn't sign necessarily to play every day. And you could argue that Rojas, as we discussed previously, took may have taken less money with the intention that, hey, like it's going to give us more of an opportunity to have a, the ability to sign some guys. Not that whatever Rojas left on the table is going to be the difference between whether – Correa wears an NY on his hat, or he wears a Miami Vice-looking fish on his hat going into 2022. But I think that a guy like that is selfless enough to a lot to say, hey, like if we have the opportunity to bring on a guy like this and he shows a tangible interest to want to come here, then we should do everything possible to ensure that he winds up in Miami. The back, it, the back is one thing that raises some concern. Uh, move over to starting pitching. Look at a guy like Clayton Kershaw, as elite as he has been for such a long time. And I know people familiar with me know that I am not averse to talking about my affection for a guy like that. Back injuries are something that can plague a player, especially if you're playing a premium defensive position. Like a shortstop, we've seen talk, too, where Correa may eventually have to move to third base down the road, and he's done that in the World Baseball Classic when he played for Puerto Rico. So he doesn't have a aversion to doing that. Uh, yeah, like, he, like you and I have said, he's the big white whale that I think most teams have circled on their board as far as what they want. Uh, you could even talk about a guy like Marcus Simeon maybe playing shortstop for you if you want to spend, you know, say upwards of $140, 150000000 million. Should a team want to pay that, he's a better alternative to Correa as far as – Financials are concerned, though he's a, though he's four or five years older, so there is that concern there. Uh, but we'll move off Correa now because obviously I don't think he's going to wind up there. I just think he'd be the perfect example of Miami saying we're going to spend this offseason and actually going out and doing it. If you want to get more affordable and you want to get back to a guy who just has the reluctance to want to see four balls go past the plate without swinging, then you may as well give Javier Baez's team a call. We understand the big Latin presence in Miami, and I would say maybe that's a little bit exaggerated because if you look across the major leagues, there's a wealth of excellent players from all walks of the Caribbean playing major league baseball in South America. Javier Baez, though, it should be shouldn't be slept on. When he went over to the Mets, despite the controversy he caused with the booze and, and everything that kind of went on there, he put up a 371 on base percentage in 49 games as a Met. He 47 games, my apologies. 141 OPS plus. The power is there. 
He's as good a defensive shortstop, if not slightly, maybe only slightly below the tier of what Correa is. And another guy who can pretty much play every infield position that you ask him to play. He played a lot of second base with the Mets, but he at heart is an excellent defensive shortstop. Like we said, he's not gonna he's not gonna draw a lot of walks. Twenty eight walks, led the National League in strikeouts. But the power's there, the defense is there. I think he's young enough to where Miami could be competitive, and he's still a productive player. I've noted several times how much I loathe his approach at the plate, but the results show itself. The proof is in the pudding, as they might say, for lack of originality. He's a four and a half win player. He's not Correa, but he's an excellent player regardless. He's got postseason history to show for it. Not this year, but in years past with the Cubs. Um, yeah, I mean, Baez may take 160 to 180 million. I think he recoups some value after a horrendous 2020. But, you know, give me your take on Javier Baez and, you know, maybe some other guys that can maybe fill in a middle infield void for us. I don't know what you do with his Mets tenure because he was uncharacteristically like able to draw those walks, which is the one almost defining quality of his offensive game throughout his career is that he doesn't take pitches, that he doesn't do that at all. He, of course, he knew that this was going to be his pending free agent year. And maybe that was a particular focus of his to show that he was capable of doing that at times earlier, this same season with the Cubs at the very beginning, he got off to that slow start. And there were a lot of smart people that I keep tabs on in the baseball community who were insisting that this was the beginning of the end, that he was a player that had been in the league long enough that the league had figured him out. His stubbornness to adjust to the way that he was being pitched would doom him and that he would not age well. And that narrative, it completely flipped by the time we got to the end of the year. Yeah. To such a point that, that, although it's almost considered a foregone conclusion that he's going to get a very long-term deal from somebody, perhaps even the Mets, just based on how well he played down the stretch. One of the many stats that I love about him is that even this year, he put it all together, and it wasn't just the strikeouts, but he got to those strikeouts by swinging and missing at a rate that nobody does. If you look at just the qualifiers in baseball, 21.7% swinging strike rate. And the difference between him and number two in and swing strike rate is the same as the gap between number two and number 11. He is by a mile a guy that when people with as much as he do, he does, they don't play enough to qualify because they're bad. He is the total, he breaks every mold that we try to put the modern baseball player in. And that's what makes him very delightful uh, in in addition to all the intangibles, the way that he plays defense, the way that he runs the bases, one of the most iconic plays of this entire baseball season was when he was caught between first base and home plate, and he turned it into a two-base error and scored a run. It was something that we just hadn't seen before, and he does, he's good for one or two of those every single year, doing a play in like a particular way that you haven't seen before. By virtue of being traded during the season, doesn't have the qualifying offer attached to him. That is a bonus for the Marlins who love to hoard their draft picks and are concerned about that. He, he was one that I had written down another one of our overlaps for sure, because he is, I think even in the most um, optimistic scenario for his camp, he's probably going to be half the guaranteed money as Correa. I think he is in that range where depending on how the market develops around him and what these other shortstops go for, 
there, there are so many potential shortstops available this offseason that it feels like one of them is going to end up settling for less than you would ordinarily project them for. And, and maybe it's bias just because he has this very unique approach that intrigues some teams and probably scares some other teams completely shitless. And I don't know exactly where the Marlins fall on that spectrum. Yeah, I mean, we even saw it too with Jazz Chisholm. You know, if you saw how much better uh, Baez was offensively when he was reunited with his World Baseball Classic buddy and fellow countryman um, Francisco Lindor in New York, even though the Mets faltered, the opposite could maybe be the case for a guy like Jazz Chisholm, who he said doesn't walk enough, and maybe if there's one of the things that he needs to work on, it's that. I believe they were pretty close and walked. I believe Chisholm walked less than 35 times in 2021 by his 28 times as previously noted. And, you know, if we're expecting bigger things from a guy like Chisholm, if you're bringing on a guy like Baez, and I will say that baseball players and most people are um, creatures of nature. And if you're picking up on what other guys' tendencies are, maybe it doesn't help to have a guy like Baez there. But that being said, he just does a lot more to offset it. You know, it's like Buxton, to an extent where the defense is great at, his, at you know, you can put him at third base or second base or shortstop, and he's probably going to play above average defense at all those spots. And then you balance that with the prodigious power that he has because, you know, he's almost like another Dave Kingman where, you know, just touch the ball and chances are it's going to either go in the gap or it's going to be a home run. And he's got that kind of power, but he has a stubbornness about him when it comes to just swinging at everything that makes him at times one of the most annoying players to watch. He's almost a guy, you know, I equate him sometimes to Javier Baez. The bipolarity of Javier Baez is like watching him swing and miss at a slider 12 feet out of the strike zone and being and saying, Jesus Christ, mute the TV, turn off baseball and go do something else. Or he'll make a play on the base pass or defensively like he did to poor Will Craig in Pittsburgh, where you're just like, oh, my God, like this guy's so fascinating. I want to watch and see everything that he does, but it's just that dichotomy that exists with him as a player that makes him such an odd case. But it's just like the question that you have to ask yourself as a front office if you're going to commit five or six years to him is, does the good outweigh the overwhelmingly bad at times? And I – Sure, one team will pose that question and come to a decision this offseason because he's not going to go without a team just because he's a name and he's one of the most marketable players in the sport because of the good that he can do at times. Well, he exhausts my personal list. So anybody you still have left that you want to cover, we'll tackle them right now. No, that's everybody. I mean, he he's definitely an interesting guy to end on. I mean, and how poetic is it to end this podcast with – a guy that can at times frustrate you the way this organization has frustrated fans for a better part of three decades. So, yeah, aisle five of our offseason shopping. I think overall we've touched on more than 60 players. I'll have to do a head count once we get finished with this. And uh, the timing worked out pretty well where uh, free agency officially got underway a, a few days ago and all these, these big guys with, with a few exceptions at the very beginning of the series, which was almost a month ago at this point, are they're still on the board. They're still out there. And uh, unfortunately and unfortunately, we might have a lot of time to marinate on this if that potential work stoppage hits about three weeks 
from now. A reminder again that all these episodes are up on this feed. You can find them also on fishstripes.com slash podcast. Just listen back to all our takes on these individual players. And as always, be sure to leave us any any lines that players that we may have skipped over. I include a link to all the players that fit in particular aisles so you could browse the entire list for yourself. If we skipped over somebody that you think makes a lot of sense for the Marlins, just, just hit us up and explain why you think that should be a big focus of theirs or the offseason. But still a whole lot of content coming on Fish Stripes, finishing up the 2020 Marlins season review series. And there will still be a whole lot of podcasts uh, going on. Um, I'll have to, again, all this, the cloud is hanging over us with potential work stoppage. We'll have to get creative with how we're covering this team if there's literally nothing going on. Eventually, whether it's in November, December, January, February, March, eventually the Marlins know that they have to take some steps to improve the team at the major league level. They're going to do something, and it's going to be a wild ride about who they're interested in, why they're interested in them, and then ultimately what it's going to cost them in terms of money and prospects to get that deal done. I'm Eli Sussman. That's been Lewis Adia Weiss. Thank you guys always for the support. Subscribe to the pod if you don't already. Rate and review if you haven't already. We appreciate all of that and so much more to come this offseason here on Fish Stripes. As always, go fish. Go fish.